All right. Well, I, I felt like it was imp- appropriate. Uh, you know, I just got back from Florida and I was um, speaking uh, on behalf of the Palau organization. Uh, they do this thing called President Council's Weekends three times a year. They got canceled, all of, almost all of them got canceled except for one. Uh, at the beginning of 2020. Um, But it's a time in which they bring their biggest supporters together and kind of lay out vision uh, for the future and kind of share results of the the festivals and the events and how many people have made decisions for Jesus and all of that. But this year's um, uh, uh, President's Council is a little different. It was a real blessing um, to just, it's the first time I traveled you know, for work since, since the lockdown began. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, uh, Florida was lovely. I, I can't tell you what it was like to preach to a room of 200 people without masks on. I was like, I'm like, I don't care if that's irresponsible. I'm, it's not my state. Um, <laughs> and I'm not their pastor. <laughs> so uh, it was the first time ever that I was shamed for wearing a mask. That, that was a new experience by a little 88 year old woman. Uh, who I'm supposed to be protecting the most. And she was like, she put her hand on my shoulder. She's like, honey, I can't hear you. Take that thing off your face. And I'm like, okay, I would love to. And then she goes, you have a gold tooth. (laughs) And she said it with like a, that's the silliest thing I've seen a grown man have in a long time. Um, But uh, the the weekend was, was there was a weight to it. And the weight wasn't just, COVID, but the weight was that Luis Palau, who's a dear friend and a mentor to me, and one of, in my opinion, the, one of the last great global evangelists, you know, on par with Billy Graham and D.L. Moody, who has literally shared the gospel with millions and millions. I think, I think the numbers are literally like over 100 million people. Um, and uh, some of the biggest crusades it's not PC to call him that anymore, festivals ever done in Latin in South America. He is really the, truly the Billy Graham of, of Central and South America. Um, I was with him in Madrid, uh, which is the only country in Europe that's never had a revival where he preached the gospel to probably 75,000 people in downtown Madrid. And I stood on the stage behind him while I watched a man with stage four cancer who earlier that day seemed like he could barely walk and he practically ran to the pulpit infused with this unique power of the Holy Spirit and to see thousands upon thousands of people respond to the gospel. I mean, such an honor. And he wasn't able to attend the event this weekend so I did all the teaching for him. And a video was shown the first night that was filmed uh, on Thursday. And he was more frail than I had ever seen him. I mean, you can tell it's he's coming close to the end he could barely talk whispering and just as of Monday he was moved into hospice um, uh, or hospice has come to his house and it just created just a um, uh, uh, not so much a a heaviness I'm I'm, of course I'm saddened at the thought of losing a friend um, but a sense of urgency and, and in that video, even in a whisper, he preached his favorite passage he always preaches. It was just like a three-minute video, and he had oxygen, and you could tell he just couldn't breathe very well because he has lung cancer. And, and uh, it, was, it was 1 Corinthians 9, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Run 
as one who's running for the prize. And just to see this man at 86 years old um, who has lived a life of such unbelievable integrity, um, who is actually finishing well, and as a result of his ministry, millions of people have heard the gospel and probably millions have come to faith because of his ministry. Ministries that we have been blessed by are the direct result of fruit of him sharing the gospel. I, was thinking, I found out that Matt Redman, who wrote um, Coming Back to the Heart of Worship, one of the biggest worship songs ever written, he came to faith at a Luis Palau event. He's just one of hundreds and hundreds of examples of that kind of fruitfulness. And it made me begin to think because at the exact same time that Luis enters into hospice, there's also been the news that's been circulating amongst Christians that another very, very well-known Christian leader um, and apologetist, uh, uh, Rabbi Zacharias, um, who died of cancer last year, uh, there's been all of this news that came out um, that revealed that he was living a double life and was using his spiritual authority to take advantage of young women. And I talked to one of his closest friends and one of my dear friends who's known him for over 25 years, vacation with him every summer on the board who had to write that heartbreaking letter um, in which they went out to clear his name only to discover that not only were the accusations true, but they were so much more than they could even imagine. And the contrast of those two men, Luis and Ravi, was really interesting to me because Ravi was someone that I always looked up to as, what a great mind, um, what a great thinker, what a great defender of the faith. But Luis is different. And why I am... 100% confident that nothing like that will come out uh, around Luis. There were far more checks and balances around Luis's life as far as accountability and all that. But Luis is not someone that you walk away with saying, what a great man. Every time you spend time with Luis, you walk away saying, what a great Jesus. And I think that that is the beautiful and unique quality of one whose life is truly surrendered to the Lord, and that is the legacy that we want to leave behind. And so I have a really simple message for you guys today, and it really is around this idea of that urgency that we are to live in the light of eternity. And when we think about living in the light of eternity, there are three words that immediately come up in my mind, and that is our mortality, our legacy, and ultimately our destiny. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, Martin Luther felt that James should not have been in the Bible because he felt like James was pushing work, works more than grace. I disagree. But I do kind of believe that James may not have been that fun because <laughs> there, there is a harshness in his writing. Um, but the sentiment is true. And I believe that the heart behind the hard words is, is really driven by a deep urgency that the only way that people will truly know what we believe is not by us 
living our faith out in our minds, but it has to manifest into our lives. In other words, the word must become flesh. Uh, It's what we call uh, incarnational living. The only evidence that we are truly children of God is not how intellectually attuned we are to doctrine, theologically astute, how much scripture we've memorized, how, how programmatic we are, how, how much ritual we engage in, even how much purpose, personal purpose we find in community. All of that falls flat on its face if it is not driven by the central tenet of the Christian faith, which is that we worship and serve a Christ who is here and present and alive. And he drives us into this world which he died for to be conduits to be physical manifestations of his invisible reality that we don't gather around ideologies we are gathering around king jesus and that the most important thing that we as a church can show to the city of portland and that we as people who are followers of jesus can show the realm of influence that we have with the people that we come into contact with is to show them that the Jesus we confess is actually someone that we know. That my heart for Door of Hope, for myself and for all of you, is that it's not so much that you have the ability to convince people that the gospel is real because of your arguments. I want people to be convinced that you believe what you believe. I want people to be compelled that there is a certain level of authenticity to your faith, a tenaciousness to it that seems to be driven by a tangible relationship that they cannot get their heads around until they meet the living Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what our lives are meant to be. It's, it's called being a witness. And so when we look at this passage and we think about how short life is, I want you to remember that we have one life to live and that the death rate continues to be one per person and that our death is certain and we do not know when it will come and we don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or if it's going to be, you know, for some of you, it looks like it could be, you know, 50, 60 years away. But the fact of the matter is, is that it could come for us. The clothes could come for us at any moment. And we can't treat COVID like a pause on existence because it is not. Jesus's mission continues and lives are still being lived. And we can't wait uh, with this, I will get back to living when life returns to normal because this is our normal right now. And so how do we live in the light of eternity in the midst of an uncertain time? I think that, that this, um, this question about the importance of living each moment with an infused sense of divine importance uh, is something that all of us, including myself, struggles to do. I was talking with, um, with my, my wife and you know, we all have had phases during this season where we can just get in our heads. And I've been in a little bit in a season in my head, I think with the weight of knowing uh, the announcement coming with Tim and just the, 
like just the exhaustion of like just trying to do church in a city like Portland and there's I've signed a book deal and the <laughs> first manuscript is due in May which every time I get really stressed about it instead of writing my book I just write a new electronic song that you'll never hear uh, I so I know what it's like to live in the mind but thoughts that stay in the mind die in the mind uh, and our thoughts are meant to take action and this is why we have to learn that the life that is lived best is the life that is lived poured out for others that we're not called to turn inward upon ourselves uh, not even in a time like this but we are called to be creatively utilizing a sanctified imagination to figure out how to engage with a world that desperately needs to hear about Jesus. Everything we do should be infused with divine intent. So in thinking about this, let's actually move toward uh, this powerful reality um, that we have here before us because I think that this is so crucial for us uh, as we consider uh, these three words, mortality, legacy, and destiny. So in, in regards to our present mortality, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 says it best. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. I think that this is a, this should create a holy fear <laughs> that our lives are telling a story. And if we only have one life to live, the question is, is, is that life being lived well? What is the story of your life? What is it telling? Whether people know it or not, the reality, I'm asking about what the reality of your life is, what you are in secret, who you are at the core of your being. Is your story, is it, is it marked by depth and intrigue? Is it shallow? Is it tragic? Is it adventure? Is it sleazy or is it heroic? And if you're a normal human being, it might contain all of those things, which is what <laughs> makes our stories stories and which is why we so desperately need as mortal beings and fallen bodies and fallen minds in a fallen world, why we need so desperately to be infused with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit so that our lives can tell a different kind of story than what the world continues to tell us. Uh, we just watched um, as a family this documentary that came out on HBO called Fake Famous. as a fascinating look at the impact of social media. And one of the things that they were talking about was that, social, that fame used to be driven by the ability to do something better than everyone else. You're famous because you're a great actor or a great athlete or a great thinker. Uh, and you had talents, a great musician, whatever it might be. And then we entered a new stage the appetite for entertainment in our culture and the elusiveness of fame created a desire for more famous people so that we could admire them because we seem to be fascinated with fame. Uh, and so we moved into the, the realm of reality television where now for the first time in world history, people could be famous just for being famous. Uh, but we've actually moved to a next level, which is now, 
people can be famous based upon algorithms and how many likes and followers they have. And often those followers and likes aren't even real people. They literally are bots. I just want to confess, I didn't totally know what bots were until I watched this documentary. Now I know. And that's why I just bought 7,000 fake followers on Instagram because I like it because they don't say anything mean to me. They're not real people. Um, <laughs> I actually wanted to start an account that only has bots as followers. <laughs> and you can actually purchase algorithm created likes and comments too, which is super fast. And you know what's the most disheartening about the whole thing is that celebrities that have literally millions of followers, real people, buy fake followers to create a sort of hyperbolic effect because the more followers, the more money that is made by industry because we don't have TV anymore. So now your commercials are just done by these social media influencers is you pay some kid that has a million followers, 80 grand to show a product in one of their photos. But this is the thing that I thought was interesting about it and how it speaks to our present mortality is that it truly is a fake world. It's a spectacle. It's a two-dimensional reality that cannot sustain itself. It's a house of cards. And when you ask young people today, there was a study recently done, what is the thing that you want to do when you grow up, you know what the number one desired occupation was? To be a social media influencer. One young man was asked, why do you want to be famous? And he goes, or he says, do you want to be famous? And, the, and he said, I don't want to be famous. I deserve to be famous. And I was like, man, that speaks to the sentiment, the shallowness of life, treating something as sacred as human existence as merely a platform by which you can receive the acknowledgement of existence as if the world is there to just sing your praises because you exist. And I was troubled by that because I saw another person, several people when they were asked why they wanted to be famous influencers said, if I had a million followers, I could be my more authentic self. One girl said that like, I don't even understand what you're talking about. And then she said, I feel like I could really change the world then. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, and the world is changing because of that spirit. And I think that this is the thing is that Christians should be marked by a unique level of depth that is driven by an understanding of the cross by which our lives have been broken open by King Jesus as we recognize that we are all fundamentally lost without his grace. And that understanding of our own sinful, broken reality is what actually makes us become saints. And saints should have a magnetism to them that, that martyr, not the martyr of like, I'm a martyr, look at how much I lay down. We use, we've turned martyr into an ugly word, but martyrdom in a pure, in an apostolic way is that I would literally lay down everything for Jesus. I want my life to matter for eternity. And when we have surrendered things of eternal value for spectacle, we have entered into a dangerous realm and, and this is why I think that we have to ask ourselves, 
If everything, there's a season, there's a time for every purpose under heaven, time to be born and a time to die. If our mortality is, is an inevitability, I was totally struck by this. That woman, Alice, when I, when I was in Florida, I asked her, I said, I'm like, are you, I think she's like 88. I'm like, are you fearful, you know, of being exposed to people? You know, in, in Portland, it's like, it's like we've put, you know, our grandparents in glass boxes and no one's allowed to visit them. And she's like, she said, she said, why would I wear a mask and, and lose a year of my life in hiding when I probably only have three years left to live? And then, and then she said, I have friends who told me that their, their children won't let their grandkids see them because they don't want to risk grandma's life. And she said, I told my daughter, don't you dare take my grandkids away from me. The only thing that makes being really old worthwhile is family. And I was like, man, that really struck my heart. And it just showed me that we have been captured by fear. I think we need to be cautious. We need to be careful. We need to be respectful of people. Uh, but we also need to recognize that people need people and that we try to protect ourselves from one thing. We leave ourselves uncovered in another area. So all the while, we're, we've done this great job of protecting Oregonians, have done really good at keeping themselves safe from COVID, but we've not done really well in keeping our kids from depression. We're not done well at keeping the homeless off the streets. There's all sorts of other areas and issues. We've not done well in protecting business owners or protecting churches and the necessity, what is essential to existence. We're not asking those questions because we have such tunnel vision around one thing and we're not even consistent in that. And so I think that this is the question about what it means to enter into a, a clear and sobering picture of our own mortality. A guy that has been with me every year at the, at the Palau um, events, his name's Gene. Um, he was coming to Door of Hope right before COVID started with his daughter. Um, and the sweetest man, only a few years older than me. And I just found out in Florida that he died suddenly in November. He had a money management um, company. He developed early onset dementia in his early 50s. And within one month, all of his organs shut down and he just died. And I think that this is, we have across the street from us, this beautiful family that we just love and we've never seen the father and we find out he has terminal cancer and they just moved hospice into his house and he's literally the same age as Darcy and I and he has three beautiful kids 22 21 and 19 and they're watching their dad die life is short and it matters what we do with our time we will give an account for what we did and so the question that I first ask you is one life to live, is it being lived well? And I recognize as much as anyone that the hardest thing in life is to live well. And this is why we need one another. The second question that immediately arises, not only our mortality and that fact that time is short and none of us know when the end comes, but we can trust Jesus because we're told that he holds the keys to life and death that he is the author and the finisher of our faith, that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father knowing it. So don't worry about tomorrow for sufficient are the troubles of the day, right? 
Isn't that what scripture declares? And we need to think about our unfolding legacy because not only do we have one life to live and we have to ask the question, is it being lived well? But we need to ask, what is the quality of the story that we're telling? What are we leaving behind? What is the thing that people experience when they experience us? Second Corinthians chapter two, verse 15, it says, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and, and among those who are perishing. So what are we leaving behind us? I love that picture of the fragrance of Christ. And, and it's a painful question to ask ourselves, but what do people around us really think about us? I think one of the best places to really see how healthy it is that you are living is probably in your home. I can present to you a picture um, of, of, of what I maybe think you want to see. I think it's one of the great dangers of being a pastor is that pastors fall. One of the reasons I practice, I am sure I have crossed the line for many of you when it comes to how, how willing I am to be vulnerable. Um, I purposefully push into my own brokenness from the pulpit because I do not ever want to live in a way that, that comes across as that guy's arrived and Josh is the ideal we need to aim for. Because you need to know I'm just like you, a guy that's gasping for grace and sometimes hitting the mark and often missing the mark. And even when I come to preach, I might try to run over a cyclist on the way to church. Like there's a, there's a reality. And, and I think that the healthiest thing that the church can have modeled for it by its leaders is what does honest confession look like? Because that confession means that Jesus has the ability to meet us in our sin. Hiding our sin is what hides Jesus from us. It's weird how that works. <laughs> and so I think that this is one of those things where we have to ask that question of what are people thinking? And I look at my family and I often ask that question, like there are times I'm super intense and I often think that your relationship with me is probably much safer from the, pulp, from the pew than it is actually being in life with me um, because I, I, I exhaust myself. Okay, that's, and so I sometimes ask the question, I mean, Darcy's here and her, her mask is covering her mouth, but she just said, amen, she didn't, she did not do that. But we did just have this conversation. There are times when I'm not in a healthy place and my intensity is exhausting, not just for me, but for the family. And there's nothing more tragic at the thought that people are relieved when you leave the room rather than saddened at your missing presence. The fact is, is that we'll all have those moments. I'm not talking about a temporary moment of agitation. You're like, you're, you're, you're newly married and you're like, I'm relieved because my husband's a me messy. I'm relieved every time he leaves because I can just live in a clean space. You know, that, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really asking the question is what does your life leaving behind? Because all of us have moments where we exhaust one another. That's just part of, you know what I said, like, Sheep need each other. They don't necessarily always like each other. Um, but, that, but that question of a, of a life that actually consistently brings tumultuous energy and, and hurt or harshness to the people that it's in contact with. Nothing is sadder when you hear about a parent who is consistently uptight and cruel to their children or, 
or someone that's overbearing and mean toward their spouse. Um, and I think that this is why we need to recognize that Jesus has called us to be conduits by which people experience his grace. And we need to model what that grace looks like, which means that we need to recognize that we need one another. And therefore, if we truly need one another, then aren't we going to do all that we can to live as peaceably amongst one another as we can? That, that I am happiest when my life is poured out for my family. I've been in this stage where I've been a little bit, I was saying it like kind of in my head as I've been just a lot going on right now. And, and my natural tendency when I get really overwhelmed is kind of escape. And I have this new, in our new house, we took a portion of attic space and turned it into this little, what I call the nest. And the only way to my study is up a ladder. And I realized that I've been hiding in that nest a lot lately. And yesterday, Darcy and I had a big come to Jesus talk about that. And she's like, you're escaping, you're in your head. We miss you. We want, we, we don't just want you in the house. We want you in life with us. And it was deeply convicting and just, and, but you know what? There was, it was a hard conversation that ended up being such like a healing conversation that when I woke up the next day, I just felt alive and I just, Darcy and I did projects in the house all day together and it was just a beautiful thing and that's like that that will be the thing that I believe it's those things that we leave behind that has real lasting effects that those days you know how we often romanticize the good days <laughs> like get enough of those behind you that it's hard to dwell on the bad days and I think the only way we can do that is by a yieldedness to Jesus and his spirit that we would leave behind the fragrance because man, I cannot tell you the tragedy of finding out that a man that I believed was living with total integrity was actually misusing his power to hurt so many young women and that it went on for over a decade and the duplicity of his life is that in being close friends with one of his best friends who's on the board He's like, Josh, I tell you, I just talked to him three days ago. He's like, I literally had no idea. I thought that Ravi was a man of the most upright integrity. We set out to discredit these attacks against his character and were heartbreakingly revealed that not only were the attacks true, but they were so much worse than we could have ever imagined. Phones filled with images of naked women, endless engagements with so much hidden behavior we cannot afford to live like that as Christians. The world is not going to judge us for failure, but they will judge us for pretending to be something that we are not. And that is the truth. It's not looking for perfection. It's looking for honesty and vulnerability and real faith and real love because that's what the world needs to witness. It doesn't need to witness a smart argument. It needs to see the gospel being played out tangibly. We need to reflect like Luis, the legacy that Luis is leaving behind is every time I was in his presence, I walked away saying, what a great savior. What a beautiful legacy that is. Finally, the one thing that we need desperately in this restless world is the strong sense of hope that the best is yet to come. We need to think about eternal things. 
we need to think about our future destiny. When I was with Luis in, in, uh, in Cannon Beach a couple years ago, he had found out he has terminal cancer. He had, he'd already made it a year, and they thought he was only gonna make it six months. So God gave him three more years, which is amazing. But um, his family was in Bogota, Colombia for a massive festival that he was supposed to speak at it. I think it was like the, it was like the 35 year anniversary of the first major festival he ever led. Um, and he couldn't go because of his cancer. And so he decided to take this speaking engagement at, at Cannon Beach, but because of his cancer, he needed, he needed someone else to help him handle the teaching load because it's a message every morning and night. And so they asked me to do it. And that was my first like really intense, like a lot of time with him. And so every day, I mean, here's a man with cancer. He came and he sat and listened to every one of my messages, which why would he need to do that? He's listened to the greatest preachers in the world and he's got cancer. Like if I was in his position, I would just hung out in my room and slept and rested and looked at the ocean. But he cares so deeply about people. Even in his sickness, he wanted to visit with people. He gave time to people. Um, and let me tell you, that guy is a magnet for little old women. Like they just surround, he's like the most charming human being like ever. They just like around him like, it kind of didn't matter actually. Everybody just wanted to be around him because he has great stories and he remembers everybody's names. It's really weird. But we would sit and visit in his room and the thing that I was struck by, and it's this verse right here. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he's put eternity in the hearts of man. Luis was more in tune with the internal the eternal impulse in the human heart. As he was confronted with the very fact that his time was limited, it made heaven an obsession for him. And we would talk every afternoon in his room and he just wanted to talk about heaven. He just wanted to talk about eternity. And when he talked to people, it was like a pleading for people to come be with him in eternity. I found it when he was in the hospital after Christmas that the doctors had a hard time getting to him because there would be people in the room and he would be, you know, he'd finish with like one, you know, a person to take, drawing blood and then he would immediately share the gospel with him. And, and this doctor gave a little testimony that we watched in Florida and he said that we would try to go into ministry and he would be, we'd hear him like, he's like, come be with me, come be with Jesus so that you can be with me. So my friend Jan said, we know who will be the first person that will be there to greet us when we get there. That's his enthusiasm for, for life, but it was an enthusiasm that was driven by the deep, peaceful confidence that the best is yet to come. Is he scared of death? Of course. It's an unknown. It's something we all have to go through and it's scary. But his belief that death itself is the servant of the child of God, which ushers us into more life, gives him the ability that even as he's on death's bed, still able to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to others. What a powerful and, and beautiful testimony to one who lives in the light of eternity. You guys, our future destiny matters. And I'm not here to question uh, whether Ravi was a believer or not. I believe he was but I believe he will have a tremendous amount to account for. And, and, and 
that will be a heartbreaking moment. But I do believe that all of us need to live with that sense that all that we do, all that we think, all that we say, we are told we will stand before our king one day and anything that was hidden will come into the light and our works will be tested by fire and those which remain will be rewarded. And I believe that the only works that will stand the tests of the Lord's purifying fire, which is his love, are the works that he accomplished through us as we yielded ourselves to him. And so here is the fact. You got one life to live and time is all we have. To waste time is to, is to kill opportunity. We are leaving behind a legacy and we have to ask the question, are we leaving behind us the fragrance of Jesus? And three, are we living with an urgency because we know that Jesus is coming back? Because we know that yes, he did die, but death did not hold him. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead and that the hope of the Christian life is the resurrection. It's not resuscitation, it's new creation. And that's what awaits us and that before us, it says that whoever believes in their heart that they shall see him purifies themselves just as he is pure. Actually, eternal perspective is what purifies life in the moment. And so as we think about Tim and Beth stepping out, the world needs more people to step out in faith and live their lives fervently for Jesus because we can't reach everybody. We need so many more churches. As Tim Keller once said, I wish there was a church for every hundred people. That would be beautiful, wouldn't it? And what I'm hearing about Portland right now is more and more churches are closing. More and more churches are shutting doors. More and more pastors are collapsing under the pressures of cultural, um, cultural appropriateness and they're giving up their orthodoxy. More and more pastors are abandoning the cross and the gospel and giving themselves over to social causes, which are beautiful, good things, but if those causes aren't anchored in the cross, they're, they're pointless. Because we're not called to make Eden on earth, we're called to bring Jesus to the earth. And he alone has the power to bring transformation. And so this is my call to you. It's a call of urgency. In the words of Luis, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. I love you guys. I believe that the best is yet to come. And I believe God's gonna do great things through Tim and Beth. And I believe God's gonna do great things through, through this church and through Door of Hope Northeast. And I pray he does great things through every church that is true to the gospel in this city because our city needs Jesus desperately. So let's pray together. I love you guys. May God light a fire under you that gives you that deep desire to make him known in everything.